about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says. The Holy One of Israel and its maker, concerning things to come, do you question me about my children? Or give me orders about the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. But not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabaeans, they will come over to you and they will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly, you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and Savior of Israel. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgraced. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he found it. He did not create it to be empty but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be, present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it, was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn by my mouth, has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him.
I'm Mick, and I'll be reading our second reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. This is written many hundreds of years after Isaiah. This is from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Well, good evening. My name is Mike, one of the pastors here. And if you are new here, it's great to be with you online or in the building. And uh, if you are new, um, you found yourself at the end of this little mini series on this portion of Isaiah, but that's okay. There'll be lots to pick up as you go. And uh, I'd encourage you to keep the pamphlets open, keep, uh, keep God's Word open in front of you so that you might see how this unfolds. But let me, let me ask this question I've been asking all day. Put up your hand if you love surprises. Yes, yes, you're my most surprise-loving congregation today. I am not surprised you lose cannons. Okay, um, the challenge of surprises, of course, is, is that, that it's an unguarded moment. And I've been singing that sort of old-school song for a little while, actually, today. Uh, it, it's a moment when it's revealed that you're not in control. So whatever plans you had, you've been surprised, and that's kind of been disrupted, and kind of what unfolds, unfolds. There's good surprises. We love good surprises. Like, if it's your birthday, you know, maybe you play, planned kind of like a nice, relaxing evening, a quiet meal, and kind of a movie or whatever, and all of a sudden, surprise, surprise party, you know, all of a sudden there's all these people, and they're celebrating you at the center. Not your plans, but maybe a good thing, or maybe not. There are other kinds of surprises that are very disruptive in the negative sense. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe your colleague got promoted above you when you thought, you thought the boss promised you otherwise. Maybe you've discovered your partner is cheating on you. These are the kind of surprises that shock us and that cause all kinds of emotions, compressed emotions to kind of just billow out. Whether they be tears of joy or whether they be lament or kind of a rage and anguish. This passage begins with a response to Israel's anguished surprise because they find themselves quarreling with God. No small thing to do. Isaiah's been prophesying that God would send them into exile, uh, that they would be subjugated under a foreign rule. And the few chapters we've looked at have really centered on how God speaks comfort into that tumultuous predicament. But there's something that's perhaps a little bit new here, because even though they're sort of railing against that predicament, in this part, they, they quarrel. Why would they quarrel at this point with God of all beings? I think that the new bit of information that's really unsettled them is this Cyrus character. Now, maybe you're unfamiliar with kind of the Old Testament story and its details, and I reckon Isaiah wouldn't have known really who, sorry, Israel, I keep getting Isaiah and Israel mixed up. Uh, They're very similar. Uh, Israel wouldn't have known who Cyrus was either because when Isaiah was written, and spoken as a prophecy to Israel. They sort of knew about the Babylonian kind of empire, uh, you know, 
at a distance. They were going to be used by God to come in and drag them into exile. Uh, but it would be the Persian Empire over the top of them that would later come and destroy the Babylonians and actually, through Cyrus, send them back to rebuild the temple. Now, they wouldn't have known all those details when they received the prophecy. But the thing is, is Cyrus, it's not a Jewish name. And, and when Israel would have heard about this Cyrus figure, particularly described as kind of like, he will be my shepherd, a Messiah-type figure. God will take his right hand to deliver them. They say, who the heck is this non-Jewish guy who's going to deliver us, this Messiah-type figure that we don't want to have anything to do with, this foreigner? Now, just to kind of help us empathize a little bit here, and to be a little bit contentious, maybe too contentious this morning, I dropped Donald Trump's name as kind of a, as a figure that, you, what, what would it be like if God said, I will take his right hand and he will be my shepherd. But you could also apply that to Putin, President Xi, and anyone who you think is a foreigner who you don't quite identify with and you couldn't possibly imagine God using to deliver you. If you can imagine that, you can imagine Israel's predicament. What the heck are you doing, God? How could you possibly do that? Surprise. <laughs> Offensive surprise. And as Israel quarrel with Yahweh about their predicament, they are caught off guard because they're exposed in their self-righteousness and their limited, puny vision of God as we'll see unfold. And God speaks into that vulnerability, not with comfort, comfort, but with this, woe to those. How dare you quarrel with your maker? They are confronting words for us to read, perhaps, but definitely for Israel to hear. How dare you quarrel the potsherds of the ground, the broken bits of ceramic. I'm not a potter, but I, could, I did some Googling about pottery. Uh, you, you might be into such things, but you can imagine kind of like in, in kind of the, the pottery, the place where you do pottery, uh, there's, there's broken bits of ceramic on the floor. There's kind of bits of clay just chucked around or whatever. Those manky bits... Are they able to speak to the potter about what the potter is doing? Can the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Of course not. Not only can they not speak, but how could they speak to the maker? Because they are the object of the maker's prerogative, creativity, initiative. Just as the child, you can't say to the, to the mother who's giving birth to a child, what are you doing? That doesn't make any sense. It's definitely the child can't speak to that, but how offensive it is to speak to the mother in such a way, whoever that is. God responds to their quarrel by simply reminding them and asserting his godness. Because the Israelites are in danger of forgetting who God is. They have domesticated him. They've, they've put him on the leash of their agenda and God is breaking free of those perceived imaginary chains and he's reminding them that he is the revealed Holy One of Israel, their maker. Now, when we're threatened, when we're not living in abundance, we sort of go back into this scarcity mindset. Kind of we, we, we tunnel in, we lose the peripheral big picture, and we start tunneling in and kind of just protecting what we have around us. I think that's what ha what's happening for Israel. They're, they're very unsettled, as, as, as I prophesize about what God's going to do. Uh, they're losing the big, grandeur picture of God, and they've been losing it for, for centuries. And, and they're just kind of tunneling in, 
thinking they're at the center of the universe. Friends, I wonder, or I know that COVID's been doing this. We've been speaking about how kind of COVID, COVID sort of moves us out of that abundance framework into that scarcity mindset, how we kind of, in the instability of kind of all that's going on in the world, we start making our little sphere protected. My question to you as that happens is, is God getting smaller in that moment at the same time? Is your vision of what God can do getting smaller? Are you starting to quarrel with God? What are you doing? As though you could stand over Him and question Him. Now, God doesn't respond to Isaiah, oh, sorry, but Israel or to us necessarily with kind of a detailed outline of a defense of why He's doing what He's doing. He simply responds with, I am God. Verse 12, do you give me orders about the work of my hands, the hands that made the heavens? It's the same kind of response that God gives Job. God reminds them that there is no one higher than him, no one that gives him orders, no one that has a higher way, a better way. And he says in verse 13, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. God will do as he pleases. He is the maker of heaven. He is the most powerful of all. And he will do as he pleases. And when I put it like that, you go, that might not be that nice. We've seen the negative of that play out in all kinds of human leaders where power corrupts and, and, and they use power to abuse. They do as whatever they please. So there's a scare factor here. But God's plan, unsurprisingly and consistently throughout Scripture, is to use that power to serve and deliver. Verse 13, God, he will, Cyrus will, as an instrument of God's hand, will re rebuild my city, God's city, Israel's city, and set my exiles, God claiming Israel, free, not for a price or a reward, but because of God's glory. That's how he uses his power even if Israel quarrel and complain. <laughs> what follows is two more speeches from God as he asserts himself. You can see that kind of outline, verse 14 and 18. The Lord says. The first speech zooms out from the predicament that's unfolding for them. And this is help, really helpful for us to see. It zooms out so that they might see that there is no other. Like, seriously see that. Because as it zooms out, we get this picture of kind of exotic foreign powers, the products of Egypt. This is verse 14. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabaeans, whoever they might be, they will come over to you and will be yours. Here we see these exotic foreign powers not ruling over, even though it's prophesied, that, that a foreign power will rule over and take them. But when you zoom out even bigger than that, bigger than Cyrus, God bigger, you will see that these powers end up flipping and start serving Israel. They will bow down to Israel and they will say this, get this, surely God is with you. A phrase uttered multiple times in the Old Testament by foreigners. They will say, there is no other. There is no other God. They will say that. Of you. And what I find crazy about this is Israel aren't even saying this. They're doubting that God's even with them. But God is taking them away from the short-term predicament to see the big 
glorious picture. And he's showing them that he will do as he says. His glory will be vindicated as much as they quarrel and complain against whatever God's doing in their small view of things. And anyone who trusts in God will be vindicated also. Friends, we need to see this. As young people, if I can include myself with you for a moment, we often play short-term games. We're looking for short-term wins. It's hardwired into us. We're kind of app-focused. We kind of want a success now. I've got a lot to give, and let's do it right now. I can see a better way. Let's do it. But this short-term thinking is not how God necessarily does things. God is the God of eternity. He has a, a big, glorious plan. And he wants, this, he wants Israel to see that. He wants us to see that. Now, because I am getting a little bit older than some of you, most of you, I'm starting to see this play out. I'm starting to see that in each moment that I've raged against God, like, what are you doing? I had a plan. I could see how much I could do good. Why did you take that away from me? Or kind of, why is this happening? In each one of those moments, I've been able to look back on and see how God has, has woven his plan through them for his glory, not for mine. Now, I can't see that in everything, but as I get older, I can see that playing out. I remember speaking to uh, a friend of mine who's a, a bit older than me again, and he went to a school reunion. Uh, is that still a thing? People still do school reunions? Yeah, maybe. I have not been to one. But uh, he went to a school reunion, and, and he played the game of kind of like one-upsmanship. Everyone's telling the stories of how their life's so great. But as he heard story after story, there's a Christian man telling me the story, as he heard all the other stories, he got this picture of everyone playing for immediate success. And there was a constant wake of, of kind of burned relationships, uh, remarriages, split families. And as a Christian, mature man, he was able to look back on his life that might have been a bit slower, but he could see the way God was working integrity through him, slowly but surely. He was playing the long game. And he was just thankful for God's goodness. Friends, if you're bumping up against God and quarreling against him constantly, I wonder if we might just have the humility to pull back a little bit. To see that God is God, we are not. And to see what he does with that. Now, just to sort of keep going with the surprise factor here, I love the way the next bit unfolds. Isaiah chirps up after God has this little speech. And he says, um, where are we? Where are we? We are at the end of, there we go, 15. Truly, you are a God who has been hiding himself. Oh God, you tricky one. I saw your little plan there, the way you were going to hide behind the exile and then come good and show everyone how good you were. Is that what I, I think Isaiah here is reminding us of the mysteriousness of God. Now, we might not be heaps comfortable with that. It sounds a bit sort of um, esoteric, uh, sort of hairy-fairy, uber-spiritual. But the thing is, is God must be mysterious. If we're able to close down all the mysteriousness of God as though we could have a vantage point over all of God and all of his plans, then we collapse God to no God at all. And I think that's why Isaiah goes on to say all the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgrace because, as Matt said last week, you take a lump of wood and you craft it out of creation and you're like, wow, here is your God and I can see all around that. I can see how you made it. I can see it's blind, it, it's dumb, it's mute. It has no power, it's not mysterious. 
But we're talking about the living God here. I don't have that vantage point. He must remain mysterious in some way because he is God. So yes, God does hide himself in the sense that he is mysterious. He will, according to our limited perspective, work in unexpected ways. But he also hides himself in weakness. And as I look through the Old Testament, I see kind of, I see Sarah and Abraham promised in their old age that they will have uh, kids in accordance with the promises God made to them, even though she might laugh a little bit. I see kind of how God works through Moses and promises him in his lack of self-confidence that he will be the one to lead Israel out of Egypt. I see a shepherd boy who is promised to be the great king of Israel. I see time and time again, God work his power through our weakness. And we often don't have eyes to see it. No more explicit, of course, is the cross of Jesus. As Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, it is a wisdom and power that looks like foolishness to the world. How could God make himself so fully revealed in a guy who dies on, on, a, on an implement of torture? How could that be God's great manifestation? But that's the thing. God's been in the business the whole time, consistently, unexpectedly, working towards, verse 17, everlasting salvation. And the cross is the way he did it, ultimately. Friends, we need to be saved from ourselves. In our own strength, we can't see that we're the problem. We can't even see God's solution. And it's often when we reach our end, when we are exhausted, when we are spent, that we see that God was the beginning all along. And it was him all along carrying us and will deliver. Israel will be, will be taken to their end, literally. Because they have refused to return to God and be faithful. And yet, God will remain faithful and deliver them because he is a God that saves. That's not a sneaky God. That's a mysterious God working in unexpected ways according to his faithfulness. And that's exactly what the second speech really hammers home. In that second speech, starting in verse 18, the Lord says, we see God assert himself again. I am the Lord. I have not spoken in secret. I, the Lord, speak truth. Was it not I, the Lord, who has done these things? Turn to me and be saved. I am God and there is no other. Here is the I am who has revealed himself from the beginning and continues to reveal himself pushing forward his plan to save stubborn people who consistently reject him according to his faithfulness. But what I love here is Isaiah makes it explicit here that God has not done these things in secret. So whatever we make of God's mysteriousness, God does not do these things in secret. He does not, he's not a superstitious God. You don't need a secret handshake to enter the kingdom of God it's not hidden behind secret knowledge or accessed by some secret ritual or sought in vain as though you would labor all your life in the hope that you might receive salvation and in the end surprise, not for you, buddy. No, he has made himself known in public. He is accessible. He speaks words of truth and invites us to respond and enter into relationship with him. Even if that is done in unexpected ways, that is on offer. At every point in history, God's able to say, was it not I that did these things? And he did those things in history 
because he is a God who is involved. He uses his power to serve and deliver. And so we ultimately see this in Jesus. As God came not to be served, but to serve. And the Apostle Paul was again able to look back on that as, as he spoke to King Agrippa. And he says, I'm convinced that none of this, referring to Jesus, has escaped your attention. Because it wasn't done in a corner. That is, this is public. It's not secret. It might look foolish. It might look like weakness. But this is how God consistently makes his beauty and glory known. This is how he opens up salvation. Now respond. Because there is no other righteous God or Savior. God is God. This is it. It's consistent and unexpected when you boil it down to that. When you look at the whole story of Scripture, God is God and He is righteous and He is a Savior. But let's not lose the, the wonder of the way He goes about that. The mysteriousness. The unexpected ways. I love how Philippians 2 captures just the drama of this that portrays kind of Jesus as the one who did not uh, hold equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage, but instead became a servant, enfleshed in human likeness, and he humbled himself in unexpected ways, in weakness, unto death for us. And so God raised him up and gave him the name that is above every name. That's how he would make his power known. That's how he'd make his glory name. High, visible, so that at the name of Jesus, and this is the important bit here, we see the two passages kind of converge, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and by me every tongue will swear. That's how this passage in Isaiah finishes. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. I love Philippians 2. It is such a beautiful passage, but over the last couple of years, God has shown me, and as this passage shows us, this is not a passage just for the faithful, just for the inner circle. This is for everyone because God is the God of all things. And what that means is that some are going to bow the knee and confess Jesus willingly, beautifully, as they accept their Savior, as they adore Him. And there will be others that will be confronted by the Lord Jesus and be like, it was true. As verse 24 puts it, all who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. For as beautiful as God's self-revelation is, as glorious as it is, as it, is, as it opens salvation to all who would believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, it logically means that there will also be some who come to Jesus in shame and judgment. Oh, if they had seen the mystery of God revealed in Jesus before it was too late. The world has been put on notice. According to Isaiah 45, according to Philippians 2, its maker, its savior has made himself known. And so the imperative rings out, turn to me and be saved. Verse 22, the gospel. Turn to the Lord and be saved. There is no other. 
Jesus Christ is Lord. He might not be what we expected, but He is who we need. He's who the world needs. If you know Jesus, cling to that truth. His grace is sufficient through all things. If you're in a season of kind of struggling, quarreling against God as it were, take up the Psalms and kind of take that quarrel with a posture of still faith, of of help me believe. Because there's a humility still in that that says, you are God, I don't quite understand, I'm struggling here, but but kind of, you are God, Help, help me understand. Help me to trust. But do do that in humility. Don't quarrel like Israel, putting yourself above God, thinking that you know better than Him because you don't. But also take up this this heavy mantle. As C.S. Lewis writes in his essay on, on the weight of glory, lay the glory of my neighbor on my back that is so heavy that it is only Christ in me that can carry it. That is, that, that all people will come before Jesus. Will they bow the knee willingly, adoringly, or will they be put to shame? Friends, let us take up the burden of that that we might make the good news of Jesus known in this place. And if you don't yet know Jesus, would you ask God to, to open your eyes to give you His Spirit that you might see what looks like foolishness and weakness, but is actually God's glory revealed. Revelation 3 puts it, Jesus is knocking at your door. Would you open it? That He might come in and dine with you and be with you unto everlasting salvation. Because all who trust in Jesus will be saved with an everlasting salvation and you will never be put to shame or disgrace. Let me pray. Father, would you enlarge our vision of you? We confess on the back of Isaiah 45 that we so often have a small view of you, of of what you will do in our life. And Father, as we but up against our own creaturely limitations and we hit frustrations, things not working out how we'd like, Father, we confess that we can't see the big picture. Help us to trust you. Help us to give all of our frustrations, our burdens, our desires to you and give us rest as Jesus promised. That we might trust you with our lives and that we might seek your glory as you lift the name of Jesus for all to see that all would bow and all confess him. So it's in his name we pray. Amen.
for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.